Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, and I want to welcome today's guest, Marcy Buckner, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals, NABIP. Welcome, Marcy, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so nice having you here today on our podcast. I feel really lucky because you were very recently a speaker for KHIP Orange County. And as always, you were fantastic and everybody in the room loved you. Thank you for doing that, by the way. And you're always so great. Every time I ask you to speak, every time I ask you to be on a podcast and so forth, you're always so kind and so willing to share your knowledge. So I want to just thank you for that before we get started. Thank you. And I think it's so important that we continue to educate our, our members and health insurance consumers. So that's why I am always so happy to join you because um, you're always so helpful in getting these messages out there. Well, thank you. Well, we have a lot to talk about. So let's get right into it. First, tell us about NABIP. You recently changed your name from NAHU or the National Association of Health Underwriters to NABIP. Can you tell us about why that was so important? Yes. So we really felt that the National Association of Health Underwriters didn't truly reflect our membership and who we are in the health insurance market and, and benefits landscape, really. And so we worked with our members and um, some special task forces and our board of directors and put forward to our membership this past summer at our annual convention a new name that we felt really um, better reflected our membership and who we are. And that's how we settled on the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Uh, we know that underwriters doesn't always um, truly show who we are and underwriting isn't done the same way it was when it um, when the name was formed several decades ago. So this is really um, bringing us into the, the times that we're in now and hopefully well into the future uh, to continue to grow our organization and to continue to reflect the folks that are members. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. As you know, here in California, we changed our name last year as well yes. <laughs> for the same, basically the same type of reasons. And we wanted to have uh, the people in Sacramento not think of us as, you know, underwriters that decline coverage for people, so to speak. So, uh, exactly. yeah, so that's why we changed our name in, in the state as well. Well, we have a new Congress with the November 2022 elections, as well as a new Speaker of the House. After a lot of compromise and controversy, let's start with the basics. Tell us about the Senate, the numbers needed, the breakdown of the Democrats and Republicans. How does that all stand now? Well, we had a little change in the Senate based on the midterm elections. And now we have, well, technically we have um, 48 Republicans and 48 Democrats. And then we have three independents. And those independents, what we say is that they caucus with the Democrats. So that technically gives the Democrats 51, which is close to where we were in the last Congress. Um, the last Congress, we had a 50-50 split in the Senate, um, but the Democrats were determined to, to have the majority because we have a Democrat in the White House. Um, but here they now have a true 51-seat uh, majority in the Senate. But this still is 
not a clear majority for them to get anything passed in the Senate through regular order. It takes 60 votes. So neither party has that 60 vote majority in the Senate. There are a few uh, special items that can be passed with the 51 vote majority, which the Democrats do have, but that's still going to be very hard to get to because with those three independents that caucus with them, um, there are some issues that they may side with the Republicans on. So they're going to have to work across the aisle, um, the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, to be able to get things passed and, and especially through regular order to get to that 60 votes. Yeah, thank you. I know it's uh, it's been kind of crazy there. Let's talk about the House of Representatives. What's the official count now, Democrats versus Republicans, and uh, what's needed to pass and so forth? Sure. So here we have 222 Republicans to 216 Democrats. And here the magic number to get things passed is 218. That's how many votes you need to get something passed. And with these numbers, I know when we say we have 222 Republicans, that is four more than is needed to get to 218 to get that simple majority to get something to pass in the House. But as we'll talk about in a minute, with that difficult speaker vote, um, we see that it's very hard for all of the Republicans to vote as a block to get to that 218. And so this is another situation where to get to that number of votes to get something passed, we're going to have to see them working um, across the aisle and working together. Um, but with with the both the House and the Senate, the party that has the majority also chairs the committees. So um, on the Senate side, the Democrats are, are chairing the different committees, so they're going to have more control about what goes forward to the committees for hearings. And on the House side, it's the Republicans who are going to be wearing that hat. So it definitely determines um, the, the policy angles and the direction for their agenda on what we'll see for the 118th Congress. Right. So staying on the topic of the House, though, let's talk about what wasn't settled until just a short time ago. You just mentioned it, the new House Speaker, plus the majority and the minority leaders. I'm guessing things were pretty intense in Washington over the past couple of months. And I'm wondering, did you get any sleep at all? And how crazy was it for you and everybody at NABIP? I didn't get much sleep that first week of January. Um, we were not expecting 15 votes uh, to take place before getting a Speaker of the House. Um, and it has also impacted a number of other things that have, have made it really intense here. So without having that Speaker and because they took a week to, uh, to go through that vote, it has also impacted um, the creation of their committees often. Sometimes they they pretty much have committees set as they go into swearing in um, swearing in for this Congress. Technically, was supposed to be January third, um, but it was a bit delayed because of the speaker election. Um, but normally they have their committees kind of sussed out and they they know where everyone's going to go. But because of the delay in the in confirming the speaker, the committee assignments are also a bit delayed and there are, are there's still some jockeying around. Um, they're, they're almost complete, but it's because of some of the concessions that were made during the, the voting for the speaker and where McCarthy was um, working with different caucuses within the Republican Party and saying, we'll, we'll give you this many seats on this committee or that many seats on that committee. Um, and so now they're trying to rearrange things and get those settled. So it has um, normally with um, 
past Congresses, they're they're able to kind of jump in, especially after a midterm election, and and get things rolling. But we are working on a on a bit of a delay here because of the impact of that vote. Yeah. So for the benefit of those listening that may not be as familiar with politics, can you just uh, remind everybody what the final outcome was with the uh, majority and minority leaders? Just let them know what those who those people are and what the names are that they should be paying attention to in the news. Sure, sure. And so on the speaker side, we have a speaker. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, and the House Majority Whip is Steve Scalise. Um, Kevin McCarthy was it was expected to take the speakership um, up until all of the turmoil from that first week in January. So that was was not the fact that McCarthy ended up as speaker was not a huge surprise, but the difficulty in getting there was not expected. And he, of course, has been in the House for several, several years, a longstanding leader in the Republican Party. On the Democratic side, we did have a change there in leadership. And this is where we saw Nancy Pelosi kind of um, passing the torch to Representative Hakeem Jeffries. And bringing a, a new younger leadership in on the Democratic House side. Um, they do still have some other leaders that have been kind of um, the, the, the stale worth guard, the old guard there um, that are that are going to remain. And of course, Nancy Pelosi is still in the House. Um, so she's there to help guide Hakeem Jeffries as he um, serves as the leader of the minority party in the House. Well, thank you. Tell us about the impact of the 2022 elections, you know, the changes in power in D.C. and so forth. Yes. So here we're we're having that change with the Republicans taking um, having the majority in the House. And this is going to impact the way that we see um, bills moving forward. And it's also going to have an impact on what we see on the regulatory side. So because of those numbers that I mentioned earlier and the difficulty in uh, McCarthy being able to, to get all of the Republicans to vote together as a block, um, as again was a great example with, with that speaker vote, and this is something that both parties battle with. Um, Nancy Pelosi also battled with this in the past congressional session, um, and but she is she is a very good counter, um, and yeah. she counts every vote, <laughs> and she will not put something on the floor if um, if she doesn't know that she has those 218 votes to get something passed. Um, Kevin McCarthy is also a very good counter. Um, he the he just got swept up in politics with um, with that speaker vote of of some of the um, fractioned off caucuses of the Republican Party. But with all of that being said, um, because there's there is going to need to be such bipartisanship to get anything passed, that both parties are going to be having to to buy in and possibly compromise on items, it, it's going to restrict the amount of pieces that are going to pass through Congress. And so there is going to be a shift, um, I believe, and we'll see more action from um, the administration, from President Biden, possibly releasing more executive orders, asking 
asking the agencies to act um, and promulgate rulemaking for as much as with it is within their power. They they do not have as much power as Congress when it comes to the regulations that agencies are able to release. But I would not be surprised if we saw more action on that side than we do from Congress because of these changes in and having split parties in the House and Senate with, with the majorities and also having those numbers so close between the majority and minority parties. Yeah. So I guess the prerequisite for being a good leader in, in Washington is being very good in math. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about the end of the year's omnibus package uh, that passed at the end of December? What's that all about? Yes. So this really put together a number of different pieces from different industries. Um, and this was a, the large budget package that passed. Um, it was a must-pass bill because it did extend um, spending in the federal government, which they, they need to be able to do to be able to keep uh, the doors open. But it did include some pieces that impact the health insurance industry. One of the biggest ones was extending the flexibility on the use of HSA funds for telehealth for people who have high deductible health plans. This was a special provision that was put in place in the CARES Act as a result of the pandemic and trying to allow for more flexibilities for access to care. And it's a piece that consumers really, truly benefited from. And the original provision for to, to make this special um, ability w- went in place and it was scheduled to end at the end of 2021. And NABIP, along with other advocacy groups, asked Congress and really stressed to them that they needed to extend this flexibility into 2022 um, and how important it was to health insurance consumers. They did not act in time. And, and so, as you all probably remember, we started 2022 without this special flexibility. And then Congress acted and put it in place for March 31st to the end of this year. We immediately, in in March, in the spring, um, after we received that win, um, that they put it back in place, immediately told them that they they needed to go ahead and act for beyond 2022 um, because of the way plan designs are done and the kind of lifespan of planning out your benefits. Um, When you're looking at what plan designs you're going to offer for the next year, you're already thinking about that in in the spring, summer, fall of whether you're going to be able to have benefits like what you're going to be able to use your HSA for, um, whether you're going to be able to use it for telehealth. So um, unfortunately, they they did not act immediately, but they did act by the end of the year um, in this omnibus package that was signed on December 27th to extend that flexibility for the use of HSAs for telehealth through the end of 2024. Um, and, and since they have been so delayed in acting to allow for these um, extensions and this flexibility, we are starting off this congressional session, um, going ahead and, and asking them to make this permanent or at least an extension of five years beyond the current extension through 2024 because we do know that it has benefited people so much, especially when it comes to access access to mental health care through telehealth. And we want to make sure that we're continuing to be able to support people to be able to get the care they need. Yeah, absolutely. We've all seen that. And telehealth has been amazing. What would we have done without it in uh, in 2020 and 2021 with everything that was going on with COVID, for sure? Well, let's, uh, let's talk about some old news, so to speak, the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you give us some reminders about that? Let's start with the Medicare component. Components in the Inflation Reduction Act. 
Sure. The the big news out of this one was the prescription drug for Medicare Part D and the ability for the HHS secretary to negotiate drug costs for Medicare Part D. And this is something that is going to be phased in. Um, it's starts off with 10 drugs, and then it increases um, over several years to how many drugs the secretary is able to negotiate. And so when when we look at this, and we, we hear that there are going to be controls on drug costs and caps on how much they can increase um, the cost of a drug beyond inflation, or um, how how fast they can increase the price of a drug after uh, a biosimilar is introduced into the market and those sorts of things. It is important to then go back and look and see just how many drugs this is going to impact for Medicare because it it, it is not across the board. Um, and like I said, it starts off with just 10 drugs and then goes up to 25 over several years. Um, but with doing this, if they are successful in the way that they contain or hopefully contain costs by doing this in the Medicare market, um, there were proposals in the Inflation Reduction Act to extend this into the private market. Those were not included in the final bill. But Medicare is often seen as a market to experiment with, especially when it comes to things like cost control. And so this is something that we're going to keep a very close eye on to see if if they are successful in this, if it is something that we'll see in five or 10 years that comes over into the private market. Yeah. What about the individual market? Yeah. So here in the individual market, this is where we saw the extension of those increases in um, in subsidies for folks on the marketplace. So as, as you all probably remember, during the beginning of the pandemic, we had an increase in how much subsidies people were receiving. And there was also a change in the provision to do away with that, what they were calling the subsidy cliff at 400% of federal poverty level. Those were set to end at the end of 2022. So With the Inflation Reduction Act, they kept those increases in the amounts of subsidies that are going out the door, um, and those will be in place through 2025. Um, And this was an attempt to try to help keep people insured, keep people in the individual market, especially since, you know, if we we rewind in our minds to the beginning of 2022, the um, the pandemic was, was still... Uh, very strong and cycling through a number of different areas geographically in the country. So trying to increase access and affordability through increasing these subsidies was was part of um, getting that Inflation Reduction Act uh, signed in in August. Thank you very much for that. Uh, NABIP had some very successful lobbying in 2022. Can you tell us about these successes? Sure. So some of the things that I talked about already that passed are are very, very good things that passed. We're very excited about the extension on HSA use for telehealth. Um, Also, um, part of of that omnibus package also included a provision allowing folks to use um, funds from their 401k towards um, long-term care premiums uh, without being penalized for taking those funds out of their 401k and putting them towards their LTC premiums. So those were very big wins um, that we were very excited about. Um, some other things that we had wins on that um, sometimes 
you are um, you 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 get your victories from what you keep out of a bill instead of um, necessarily being something that you you do get passed and have signed into law. So some things that we were lobbying against that we were successful for was that we were lobbying against a public option that was introduced um, in Congress. And this was in the form of lowering the age of Medicare eligibility to age 60. And so what that would do is create a public option for those that are 60 to 65 to buy into Medicare, to buy into a government-run system. And when we see these types of things occurring in Congress, it really is just opening the door a little bit to, to what we could see become a larger community that would be able to access a government-run system, which then becomes possibly a single-payer system. So we want to make sure that we don't let that door open, even a crack. And in this case, that would have been lowering that that eligibility age, because along with that, there there had been provisions that would have allowed small groups to buy into Medicare and other pieces. And this can negatively impact people who are already in the Medicare market because it changes the makeup of that risk pool. It can change um, with increasing the amount of providers that will now be forced to take Medicare reimbursement rates, they may decide to leave the market and it could lead to a provider shortage. So those are all reasons why we are very active whenever we see anything that looks in any way that it could develop into a a public option for any government-run program. We were also successful on a number of employer issues. And Oftentimes, Congress looks to employers as having deep pockets and that if they put fines on employers or shift costs onto employers, that it's okay because employers have endless amounts of funds to spend on health insurance benefits. But yeah, yeah don't we, we wish. know that's Don't we true. wish it for sure? <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I do wish. Yeah, I think we all wish that. Um, <laughs> But that just is not the case. Um, and so part of our job is to to explain that to Congress. Um, one of the things they were going to do was fine employers for noncompliance with mental health parity standards for network adequacy, meaning if they didn't have they didn't meet the network adequacy standards for making sure they had enough mental health providers in their network, the employer would be fined. But employers don't make up the networks that they're using for their group benefit plans. That is done by um, the carriers or TPAs. So fining the employers for not having an adequate network is 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 really silly because you're you're finding someone who doesn't have control over what you're trying to penalize them for. Um, so we were successful in getting that taken out of what eventually became um, the omnibus package at the end of the year, um, and it was floated around earlier as um, being part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, some other pieces that would have impacted employers were shifting the amount of time for in-stage renal disease um, for what is paid by Medicare as a secondary payer and shortening that time frame so that employers would be responsible for um, a longer term coverage for that ESRD treatment. And with with these types of things, I do try to point out um, with the previous item I was talking about, 
um, with the mental health parity, uh, and NAVIP and, and others like us that uh, advocate on behalf of employers and, and consumers in all markets, we, we are very much supportive of mental health parity and accessing mental health care. Similar to this this issue that I just started on with with end stage renal disease, we want people to get the treatment that they need. But um, like I mentioned earlier, with shifting these costs, shifting all of these costs onto the employer, it just especially in in situations like these, it isn't well one it isn't logical with the way that they're doing it. But two, as you pile more and more costs onto employers and more and more barriers for them to be able to afford coverage for their workforce, you'll be left in a situation where employers start leaving the market and we'll see fewer and fewer people insured, which is not the goal of of many of these items. So we really try to make sure that we're like I said, we we support people have getting coverage for ESRD. We support mental health parity, but we also want to make sure that we're setting up the markets for success. And piling penalties on employers is is not the way to do that. Yeah, thank you very much for those explanations too. And for a lot of our listeners, they may not have been aware of some of those unintended consequences that you mentioned. So thank you for your efforts, particularly those uh, related to the public option. I don't think people really truly understand what one step in that direction may result in. And also, of course, mm-hmm. for, for all of the efforts uh, on the employer issues, because a lot of us are covered by employer-sponsored health plans. So um, yeah, that's those are really important Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Over 180 million Americans are covered by employer-sponsored coverage. It's by far the largest source of, um, of, in, of, of insurance. So we want to make sure that we're, we're preserving that and, and not taking advantage of it the way that um, some of these provisions would do. Right. Well, thank you very much for that. Let's change gears a little bit and go back to something that's been around for quite a while now, the ACA. Can you tell us about the family glitch final rule? Yes, this was an attempt um, from the administration to, quote unquote, fix the family glitch. Um, And and I'm saying it like that and saying attempt because we just finished the first open enrollment cycle in which this final rule was in place. So we don't have the data or numbers to determine whether this was truly a fix. I'll start with explaining what the family glitch is, because I know um, not everyone is familiar with it or or may know that the what. That, that this situation actually has a term called the family glitch. Right, right. And so this was created um, in the ACA when they defined um, what it meant to have an affordable offer of coverage. And for this situation, um, Dorothy, you know, I like to use the Brady Bunch example because most people are familiar with that family and it makes it easy to talk about. Um, at least those of, at least those of a certain age would be. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, so if you don't know, uh, do a, do a quick Google. Um, I, I know I watched them after school. Um, so, uh, so in this situation, before the this final rule that came out earlier um, in 2022, um, under the original structure of the ACA, and again using that family dynamic, um, Mike, the the husband, was employed by an architecture firm. And so let's say that the architecture firm offers Mike coverage, employer-sponsored coverage that is affordable to him because it is not more than 9.5% of his income. Under this situation, again, uh, so, so the original ACA structure, if the architecture firm offered coverage to the spouse and dependents, 
regardless of how much they were contributing towards it. So they could offer spousal coverage to Carol, but it, they even if they did not offer any contribution towards that coverage. So Carol would would be able to go on the architecture firm's plan, but she'd have to pay full freight for it. If she attempted to go to the exchange and get a subsidy, she would be blocked from getting a subsidy because even though the architecture firm is not contributing anything towards her spousal coverage, the employee spouse, Mike, he had an affordable offer of coverage from the employer. And so that affordability um, determination extended to Carol and would prevent her from going into the exchange and getting a subsidy. So with this change in the family glitch final rule, um, in that situation where Carol is, is offered coverage, but they don't contribute anything towards it. So based on their household income, it is most probably more than her than 9.5% of their household income for, to be on that employer plan. So it's not affordable to her. She can now go to the exchange and based on their household income, uh, apply for a subsidy because she doesn't, she no longer is defined as having an affordable offer of coverage since the employer offer does not contribute much to her. And even though Mike still has his affordable offer of coverage at you know, that it's not more than 9.5% of his household income, that determination based on Mike, the employee spouse, does not attach to Carol. So she can now go and get a subsidy. And this also extends down to how the dependents are treated as well. So with the change, they estimated that 2 million Americans were impacted by the family glitch. The estimate with the final rule when they made that change is that about 100,000 people may gain access to um, a, a subsidized plan in the marketplace. And I, I know that we were talking about counting earlier. I know that the difference between 2 million people and 100,000 is, is a very big difference. But some of the reasons why they didn't think that the full 2 million people that were impacted by this would then shift to the individual market is because many of them, even if there is a cost differentiation, they may value being on the employer's plan more than the actual financial difference of going to the exchange and, and getting a subsidy. So Carol may decide that it's worth it for her to stay on that on Mike's plan, even if she could go to the exchange and get a subsidy because Jan and Marsha and Cindy are all on Mike's plan and the boys are all on Mike's plan. And so they all have the same network. They're working towards the same deductible and co-pays. And so it makes sense for her to stay with the family and, and go on to Mike's plan, even if it's maybe not as affordable to the family as her going and getting a subsidy, uh, because it's just easier for her to be able to take all the kids to the dentist at the same time. And they're all covered on the same network. So those are some of the things that they anticipate families taking into consideration and why there might not be a huge take up. But like I said, this is the, we just ended this first open enrollment with those special, uh, that change in the rule. So so we are waiting for the data to come out to see whether we saw saw a big shift. So hopefully, Dorothy, you'll have me back when we get that data and we can talk about that. Absolutely. And you're right. And, and a lot of people, you know, hopefully they learn that during this open enrollment, but it might take a while because just getting the word out so that people understand these things, it takes a while. Not everyone's going to know about it the first go around. 
absolutely. And, and when they came out with that proposed rule, that was one, one of NABIP's comments was, you know, this, this is great <laughs> that you, that you are trying to expand access and affordability, but, you know, if someone isn't working with an agent or broker, or specifically a, a NABIT member that is very well educated on this, hopefully, um, they may not have someone that's telling them about this. And, and so we suggested to HHS that they do some outreach on it to make sure people were aware. Right, right. And we can too, as, as agents and people in the industry, we can do outreach on this too. So it's, it's a good thing for everyone to be familiar with this so that we can you know, pass these changes on to consumers. So let's talk about the Medicare marketing final rule, including the recording requirements, because there were some misunderstandings, I think, about this uh, on how complicated and how uh, difficult this would be. Uh, can you kind of inform us a little bit about that? Yes. So one of the, the biggest pieces in, in this Medicare marketing final rule was the requirement for, um, well, it starts off with talking about third-party marketing organizations and their requirements to record in enrollment conversations if it's, um, if it's something that's being done telephonically. And the way that they defined third-party marketing organizations is that they did include independent agents and brokers in that definition. We at NABIP don't believe that independent agents are third-party marketing organizations. Um, it, it's structured very, very differently, especially um, independent agents and brokers that are, are part of, of smaller agencies. Many of them are, are mom and pops. Um, and so the, the dynamic and structure is very different than true TPMOs. Um, unfortunately, the way that they defined it, it did include independent agents and brokers in the requirement. And so the requirement, the way that it was stated, was that um, all enrollment calls needed to be recorded. Um, and we had a lot of questions about this because saying all enrollment or marketing calls need to be recorded, it made people very nervous about what was defined as an enrollment or marketing call. And we worked with HHS and we did get them to release some FAQs uh, specifically about this. And when we got the FAQs, it was any call leading to an enrollment. And then that caused even more confusion because um, folks were concerned that if they had a call with a beneficiary that was just scheduling and setting up a future call where the enrollment would happen, that that scheduling call would have to be recorded. Um, and we since have gotten clarification in, in a, another round of proposed rules that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute that says, no, 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 um, it, 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 it's just the call that actually contains the discussion about enrollment. Um, and so that's what needs to be recorded there. But these recordings have to be stored for 10 years, which you all know um, that you all who are in the Medicare market and enrolling folks know those conversations can be very lengthy. And you're talking about a lot of very important information, um, financial information, health information, personal information. Um, and so these calls can be very lengthy, which means that takes a lot of data for storage. And then to store them for 10 years um, is also very costly. So this is something that we have brought forward to HHS to point out that um, this, this, this is very burdensome, especially for um, independent agents and brokers who may not be part of a, an FMO or um, may not be associated with a carrier that is providing the resources for 
storing these recordings and other pieces. Um, we've also heard from beneficiaries who say, I don't want to be recorded. Right. And um, HHS's response to that was that they say that they don't want to be recorded. You have to end the call. Um, but that isn't really a solution to, for a lot of beneficiaries that may not have access to be able to meet with someone in person, whether it's because of an autoimmune disease or their geographic location or other things. And so uh, we are continuing to work on that. Um, and some of them don't want to be recorded because they don't want their personal financial and health information stored in a cloud somewhere for 10 years that um, could be subject to a data breach. Data breach. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah, it's very, very scary. Um, and, and even though these the, the storage of the recordings is, is to be HIPAA compliant, um, we all know the you know you can have the best intentions and you can be compliant with HIPAA and you can still be um, you can still get hacked or have a breach. So right, right. hospitals so, hospitals all over the country it happens like every single day. So yeah. oh exactly absolutely. Um, so there so just a lot of concerns about how how that is structured as well as um, a requirement to provide a disclaimer within the first minute of the call that says um, the agent has to say that they that they do not represent all um, Medicare plans in the area and that if the beneficiary wants more information that they're to contact Medicare.gov or when it hydro Medicare. And there were some concerns there because um, as licensed and certified agents, some some of them do actually work with all of the plans in their area. So they felt like they were being asked to provide fraudulent information. So that was one problem. But another is that they're not always licensed agents and brokers that are on the other end of the line when they call within it under Medicare or go to Medicare.gov. And so um, if they truly want to be serviced by a, a professional who is licensed by the state, um, that's those options aren't always the the best place to get that information. So um, we did see some changes to that, although not exactly changes that we think are perfect. Uh, but there were some changes in the in, uh, next round of, of proposed rules that came out towards the end of 2022. Well, thank you for that. You mentioned a couple of acronyms that you and I are probably very much aware of, but other people, other consumers might be listening to this podcast may not. First, you mentioned TPMOs, and then you mentioned FMOs. Can you tell everybody what those acronyms stand for? Sure. So the TPMO is the third party marketing organization. And um, those are, um, so a lot of times those are some of the call centers or larger groups that um, are, are working for enrollments. Um, and then the FMO is a field marketing organization. And FMOs oftentimes um, have agents and brokers that work for them or are associated with them and are able to provide a lot of overarching resources for a large community of agents and brokers. Thank you for those clarifications. I was, I was because I've done so many of these podcasts, I always try to write down, okay, what, what acronyms did they mention so that I can ask a question? Because people call me all the time and email me and so forth and say, what does this mean? Well, it was great information, but I didn't know what this meant. And, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's surprising how many, how many, uh, how many, uh, particularly emails I get uh, after podcasts. So um, anyway, that, that's a good thing though. I'm happy. I'm happy to help and answer the questions. Um, 
another question I have on this is, is besides the final rule, Medicare marketing final rule, there was a proposed rule. So what's that all about? What's the difference between the final rule and the proposed rule? Yes. So now, so the final rule is done. Um, it is enacted as a regulation. There has been a subsequent subsequent proposed rule that's making a few changes. Um, it is clarifying that piece that I talked about earlier, that just the enrollment part of the conversation needs to be recorded. They don't need to record any um, calls that are just scheduling a future call or asking a one-off question, is this prescription drug included? Um, those don't need to be recorded. So that is, is clarifying that. They're also expanding on the disclosure language. So they are addressing our concern for agents and brokers that do work with all of the Medicare plans in their area. And so now they have two choices for a disclaimer. One is I'm a, I'm a Medicare agent and I do work with all of the Medicare plans in my area. And those plans are, and then they're to list all of the plans in the area. And then it, they are still required to say if they would like more information to contact 1-800-MEDICARE or medicare.gov. And then the alternative disclaimer is for if you do not work with all of the plans in your area, and then you say, I do not work with all of the plans in your area, but I do work with Da, 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 these plans, um, but you are still required to do the disclaimer that if they would like more information to contact uh, Medicare.gov or 1-800-MEDICARE. They are also putting in place some restrictions on, um, on marketing and restricting um, the use of the term Medicare in any business name or tagline or website address. So this is something where uh, we do know people use the term Medicare in their in either their website, uh, their business address, or their business name. Yeah, um, particularly, so particularly if they specialize in Medicare. <laughs> I mean, exactly, I exactly. It's very hard to say I I specialize in Medicare if you can't say Medicare. Right, right. Um, and so uh, the folks are concerned that you know if I just supposed to say senior healthcare and that means so many different things, and um, not only seniors are on Medicare, and it, there are just so many different aspects here, as well as if you have that in your business name or in your website name, having to change all of those things can be very costly. So we are, are going to come back with, with a, a number of suggestions um, for that. And then also included in this proposed rule is a suggestion that in the proposed rule, they have what they call a preamble, where it is written in pretty layperson terms um, and kind of setting out how and why they're they're targeting different things for changes. And one of the items is to provide a checklist for agents and brokers for enrollments. And in the preamble, they are saying that as they audit some of these recordings, they don't believe that all of the information that needs to be discussed um, is being shared in some of these conversations for enrollment. And when we when we ask, because um, we have asked about this over the several years, um, well, what, what isn't being covered? What do you think is, is not happening? And uh, we, d we don't really get um, firm answers. And so this checklist, we believe, will allow um, both HHS and agents and brokers to feel as though there is a clear outline making sure all of these items are touched. Um, but they, they did not provide um, 
what the checklist would be. They did mention some areas. And so we are working with our agents and brokers that are that specialize in Medicare to provide kind of uh, a combination of, of best practices almost from some of the carrier checklists that are used as well as checklists that are used from some of our experts in the field to be able to make suggestions to HHS on on what those items would be. Um, but this was a, a 937-page proposed rule, so that th- those are just the highlights um, right, right. and much much more included on on restrictions with scope of appointments and some things like that that are shortening time periods that agents and brokers have to follow up with um, beneficiaries after getting those those scopes of appointment. Yeah, and I don't think most people realize just how cumbersome uh, going through those regulations and all those new rules and proposed rules and final rules, how how difficult that is. So I know you dive into them. I do the same thing, and it's not it's not easy. You have to really kind of filter through it and say, okay, what do what do we really need to know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's not an easy process. So yeah, thank you for that. I like I said, I've done a lot of this myself, and it's <laughs> what what you do is not easy. I can I can tell you that right now. Due to the length of this informative podcast, we're splitting this into a two-part series. Please come back next week for part two of this very important federal legislative update with Marcy Buckner. In the meantime, if you'd like to reach out to Marcy or want more information about NABIP, please go to nabip.org. That is N-A-B-I-P dot org. Or you can email Marcy at mbuckner, that's M-B-U-C-K-N-E-R at nabib.org. To everyone out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for our next episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.